coming to you from the Motor City. Hello again, and I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and this is Detroit's Daily Docket. This is another one of our special episodes. It's the interim episode between episodes three and four, and we're going to give you another update on SARS-CoV-2 slash COVID-19, and then also follow up with a quick Q&A session on some of the comments and questions that we received from our Instagram page and from Gmail. Oh, I forgot to mention that we are actually recording this on March the 16th. So we'll first start off with the update on COVID-19. And Dr. Rez, can you lead us into that? Yes. Good morning, everyone. After the first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed and found in China, the number of new cases reported was increasing slowly. Two months later, that turned into a steady current. And this steady current of new cases created an exponential curve, which was worrisome. And that means if the number of cases continue to increase, there would be about millions of cases in the U.S. by May. As we are talking, governments uh, worldwide are taking measures to prevent people from gathering. Uh, Schools, restaurants, bars, and theaters are being shut down in hopes that this would limit the spread of the virus. It was originally reported that the only method of transmission was droplets from oral or nasal secretions. However, according to a recent Chinese study, it seems that the SARS-CoV-2 is showing other ways of spreading. As it was detected in specimens from multiple sites of patients with COVID-19, The uh, live virus was detected in feces, implying that SARS-CoV-2 may be transmitted by the fecal route. A small percentage of blood samples had positive PCR test results, suggesting that infection sometimes may be systemic. Transmission of the virus by respiratory and extra respiratory routes may help explain the rapid spread of the disease. Uh, Two smaller studies uh, reported also the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in anal or oral swabs and blood. So that means the virus uh, may spread in several different ways. Uh, So Dr. Reyes, I've heard that there is something about um, ibuprofen usage and that it might increase risk for individuals who are infected. Yeah, I heard the same about uh, anti-inflammatory drugs. So these drugs are important and are used by millions of people around the world to help uh, treat pain, different types of arthritis, headaches, sore throats, and colds. However, uh, French authorities have warned that widely used over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs uh, may worsen the coronavirus. Health officials pointed out that Anti-inflammatory drugs are known to be a risk for those with infectious illnesses because they tend to diminish the response of the body's immune system. The health ministry added that patients should choose Tylenol instead because it will reduce the fever without counterattacking the inflammation. 
So this is Dr. Sung. And for those people who are going to be using Tylenol as their method of treatment, just be aware that there is a toxic effect of taking too much Tylenol. So you have to be cognizant of the medicines that you are currently taking and any Tylenol that you might be adding on top of that. Dr. Sung, uh, do you know anything about the cases that we have here in Michigan? Well, currently, as of Monday on March the 16th, we have 53 confirmed cases, one of which is a child. And this definitely brings a new perspective to the types of people who are infected and the types of contacts the even the young people should or shouldn't have with their grandparents or other potentially infected people. And some of these uh, cases did not have any history of travel. Uh, which means these uh, cases are cases of community spread. And I think at this point in um, these types of pandemics, once the initial uh, introduction of the virus has come into each community, you're going to see community spread at this point, uh, especially among individuals with no, no travel history, not even domestic travel history. So now it's people gathering, friends, neighbors, families, they're just going to spread amongst members of the community in the local areas. And here in Michigan and many states in the United States, there's the cancellation of elementary and higher education schools. So parents might be struggling. What what are they going to do with their children? They may have parties with other kids, and that's just another level of concern that parents are going to have to think about. Some may not understand the idea of quarantine and how this actually benefits the society as a whole. But when you have less people moving around, you get this concept of flattening the curve and trying to create a maximum number of people who are going to get infected. And then we get resolution faster rather than everybody becoming infected in a very rapid exponential pace. And the benefits to the community at large are pretty vast and great because if you can, once again, flatten that curve, you can slow the potential number of individuals seeking medical attention in the hospitals. So you, the goal is to not overwhelm the healthcare system. Uh, so Dr. Reyes, yes. are there specific recommendations right now to individuals both locally and nationally? Yes. So I'd recommend visiting the uh, CDC website or the Michigan Health Department, which both are reliable sources for information. But most importantly, plan as if a big storm is approaching. Fill your prescription medications. Make sure you have enough food. Prepare to stay home with your kids. And keep yourself informed through reliable sources uh, like the CDC or Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I think it can't be overemphasized to get your information from reliable sources. Uh, Social media is very powerful, but sometimes there can be incorrect information that's disseminated, not maliciously or anything like that, but make sure you're going to the CDC webpage. Make sure you're going to the health departments of your particular states to get that information. And just follow the general rules. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. If you are a sick individual who is recommended to wear a mask as you are traveling from, let's say, your home to a healthcare facility, If you touch that mask in any way, you have to wash your hands again. Anytime you're donning a respirator or taking off a respirator, that's another opportunity to, once again, wash your hands with soap and water. If you don't have soap and water, then the alcohol-based hand cleaners. And there are some home remedies 
which I don't think has been proven to be effective against the infection. So be leery of any information that does not come from a credible source. And thus far, I think what's been more dangerous than the virus is potentially the panic that's being caused by individuals. And I I would urge people to be the voice of calm within their families and go about your business as you would and protect yourself from um, infection through the things that you know how to do. Uh, Maintain good hygiene, uh, respect the social distancing, uh, stay at home if you don't need to be out on the roads, stay at home if you don't need to be in large gatherings. And I think if we have enough people that are adherent to these general principles of washing their hands, um, staying in quarantine, this thing can accelerate to a resolution much quicker than, um, than otherwise. On to a lighter note, we're going to now cover some of the questions that we received. A aggregation of some of the questions revolves around some of the research opportunities in forensic pathology. Dr. Webb, can you walk us through some of the potential avenues of pursuit? Sure. Um, It's no secret that I really enjoy research and that research is a big component of my day-to-day life here at work. Um, at the medical examiner's office. And the research opportunities that are available in pathology and specifically forensic pathology are immense. We have incredible access to the tissues of the individuals that we are diagnosing. We have a lot of slides. We have a lot of exposure to different disease processes. And so it creates a large volume of subjects that you may be interested in pursuing. There are infinite number of possibilities for doing retrospective studies, meaning studies based on analysis that has been done in the past. And there are also equal numbers of prospective studies, which are let's say you come up with a hypothesis of things that you want to measure going forward. Really, the only limitations are your creativity. Myself, I come from a background of uh, biomedical engineering. I have a PhD in biomedical engineering, and I've always been interested in doing research projects. But it's not important what type of research background you come from, and that's really key to emphasize. Having research experience of any kind is a a tremendous value for a new resident or incoming medical student because it tells your mentors and your principal investigators that you understand the process of writing, that specifically you understand the process of scientific writing, how to do a literature search, understanding the value that not all uh, references are equal and some references that may be of higher quality than others. How to be skeptical, how to read somebody's publication and be able to be critical and ask questions and maybe identify flaws or limitations within those studies. And more importantly, editing work and going through the meticulous process of publication. Those are the things that really are valuable um, when you want to start a career in research. And if you have those kinds of experiences, it doesn't matter if you were writing about 
mitochondria or if you were writing about animals in the wild or if it was a marine biology project. It really doesn't matter because all of these research endeavors have the same backbone of the scientific process and writing. So if you can bring any of that background forward, you're going to be many steps ahead of your peers in pursuing research as a resident in pathology. Right. These are all skills that build upon each other. It's just like math. You don't get to doing calculus without even knowing your basic addition. So uh, just like Dr. Webb said, it doesn't have to be in forensics specifically, but they're all very worthy. Now, for those people that are planning on doing research, you don't have to wait to medical school. You can do it in undergraduate. You can do it in graduate school. But we did receive some questions about people who are interested in medical school and have questions about which ones are the best. And that's very difficult to answer. Dr. Lavity, would you like to walk us through the selection of medical schools? Certainly. If you were paying attention or if you listened to our first episode when we had talked about how few people go into pathology and into particular forensic pathology, you might have already figured out that there are fewer people applying than there are positions available. If you were thinking about them comparing to other specialties, a competitive specialty, something like, say, cardiothoracic surgery or dermatology. Uh, for those specialties, probably trying to get into the best named school, one of the top 10 schools, will certainly help you in your career. But because you have chosen pathology, you get to consider some other things that I think are very important and will make you ultimately the best forensic pathologist that you can be. If you have, at this point, are in college and thinking about medical school, you pr probably already know the best way that you learn. And everyone learns best in different ways. Some people are more hands-on, some like the more traditional route. Uh, some learn better in a smaller setting with a lower student-to-teacher ratio. Some learn better online. So I think what is probably more important is that you find a medical school that teaches in the way that you are going to learn the best. The way to become a really good forensic pathologist is to master as much of medicine as you can to be the best pathologist that you're going to be. And then when you're in your residency, to master pathology to become the best forensic pathology. So it's all about laying that foundation for which you can build on later. So certainly when you're visiting medical schools, pay attention to how they're presenting the material and how, you, how comfortable you feel there because that is going to be the program in the school that you are going to learn best from. Now, some of the questions have to do with the any sort of forensic pathology training in medical school. Now, we here uh, in Southeast Michigan are rather fortunate because our medical schools teach forensic pathology as part of the basic pathology course. So at least you are getting uh, a couple hours worth of education. It allows those who are interested to meet the local forensic pathologist and make that very valuable connection. Uh, however, there are a lot of medical schools throughout the country that do not include that in the curriculum. I know that seems kind of strange because I think every physician needs to be able to identify basic injuries if, in case they come their way and certainly how to certify or complete a death certificate. There has to be some sort of training on that. Uh, so if you are really focused on forensic pathology and you're looking at medical school, see if they do offer that lecture and if they offer an elective in your uh, last years, because that is the way that you are going to meet the local medical examiner or coroner 
and start that very valuable connection. They can serve as your mentor. They can help when you're feeling a little frustrated, uh, have you come in and shadow them again for a day. So to remind yourself of why you're going through all of this. And of course, provide very useful things like letters of recommendation and helping you get into programs and set up your career. The other part about going to medical school and choosing medical schools that people don't think about is the family support. I think that a lot of people think that they're adults, they want to go away from home, and you really don't know how difficult medical school is. It's really grueling four years, and it's a very selfish four years because all of your friends and families, their lives sort of turn into your schedule. When are you taking the exam and are available? What rotation are you on? Do you have night call? And I think that if you are fortunate enough that you can stay near your family, besides getting the free meals and laundry from mom, it is very useful that you can spend what time you can with them. Uh, you need that. You, you need that so that you can be as well adjusted uh, and make it through the really tough times because there are tough times. After medical school, there comes selection of a residency program in pathology. What are some of the tips a person might use when making that selection, Dr. Reyes? Okay, so uh, most residency programs in pathology will offer adequate training in both anatomic and clinical pathology, depending on which branch uh, you choose to get specialized in. Uh, however, how much someone uh, learn is up to them, so it is very important to pick a program that will fit the interests and goals that you are uh, seeking. So when you're interviewing for a residency position at a pathology program, I recommend to ask questions about the opportunities that are um, offered uh, in a certain program and how many residents have interest in forensic medicine. I also recommend choosing uh, programs in big cities uh, because these uh, programs are most likely affiliated with medical examiner offices uh, which have a high volume of cases such as in Detroit, Chicago, or New York. I would like to piggyback on that uh, in that uh, this again goes back to pay attention to how a residency program teaches and presents the materials. There is a great variance. Uh, some programs have one week, two week rotations. Some have one month. Some programs allow for a lot of elective time, meaning that you can choose to do extra specialized training in some areas. Others are way uh, more strict on how you spend your time. But I definitely second Dr. Reyes in that trying to get into the biggest uh, city program that you can. Uh, you need to see a lot. You need to see the rare. You need to see the common. And you need to see a lot of examples of it in order to make you the best pathologist. Because again, that is going to be a base that for the entire length of your career you're going to be pulling from. Uh, so you don't want to just sit back and coast through your residency. You really want to challenge yourself, but do so in a program that uh, gives you a lot of opportunities with your elective time and your connection to the local medical examiner or coroner. One of the key questions that you can ask when you are visiting these residency programs is asking how each resident is able to fill their requirement for 50 autopsies. If the residents there struggle 
to fill their 50 autopsies, you know you're not going to get a sufficient amount of autopsy exposure uh, that you are looking for if you are a person that's interested in going to forensics. So if you see that there is not an affiliation with a medical examiner's office, that does not mean that the quality of education is going to be any less than anywhere else. But it might not be optimal for you who is interested in going into forensic medicine. What Dr. Webb is mentioning, that 50 autopsy minimum, is one of the requirements set forth by the ACGME, and that's the accrediting agency for residency programs. Now, this interest in forensic pathology isn't simply isolated to medical students or residents. It can also extend to pathologist assistants. Dr. Labdi, can you expand on that a little bit? As our PAs mentioned, there are very few programs in the United States that offer a specific training in forensic pathology as part of their program. Uh, That is where our PAs came from. But that means that a lot of you that are in PA programs are not receiving a forensic pathology rotation. In that situation, uh, you really more are trying to advocate not only for yourself but for the future of your field. I think certainly going to the administration in your school and emphasizing now that this is something that's very important, perhaps should be included in your curriculum, as this is now a job opportunity that seems to be opening up. Another very important connection to make is reach out yourself to your medical examiner or coroner. Uh, Certainly knowing that there are individuals who are interested, you can have conversations with them, you can come in and and shadow them and start to make that connection that could be very valuable. Uh, It may help offices realize the ways in which APA could be useful to them, and then they can help uh, sort of change their own policies and procedures based on that. Um, So if you're not in one of those few programs that have the formal training, it is an uphill battle, uh, but it's one that, as you know, we think is going to be worth it, uh, given what the future of the field and what our options are for getting the caseloads done competently. And clearly all four of us are a little biased towards forensic medicine and forensic pathology, but one of the best things about medicine is that there is a wide variety Absolutely, go into your residency or go into undergraduate school with an idea of what you might want to pursue, but have an open mind. You never know when you might stumble upon something that you never even had an idea about and then really gravitate towards that. So yes, you might be gung-ho into forensics, but then down the line, find out you like something else much better and don't be afraid to switch, but definitely forensics all the way. So before we sort of shift into some rather specific questions, why don't we end this training uh, with the questions that have to do with what additional areas of concentration or additional areas of study would be useful for someone going into forensic pathology? We'll assume this to mean uh, rotations or, or subspecialties that you could do during your training to make you a better forensic pathologist. Dr. Webb, what do you think about that? Uh, I had specific interest in neuropathology. I thought that I wanted to become a neuropathologist, and I have realized that all of my reading in neuropathology has come in very useful in my work as a medical examiner. Um, I, we examine brains in every single uh, decedent and every single case that we do. So understanding neuroanatomy, understanding the uh, diseases of the central nervous system has become uh, a very useful skill that I rely on. I think cardiovascular pathology is an area that 
is critically important. You know, above cancers, above accidents, above other types of causes of death, there is a large portion of the population that die of cardiovascular disease. So having a good understanding of the structures of the heart, uh, the physiology in regard to heart disease, I think is incredibly valuable. Or other important field in our practice as forensic pathologists is uh, pediatric pathology. Uh, sometimes we get these uh, pediatric cases where uh, sudden uh, death happens and an autopsy might reveal inborn errors of metabolism, which are rare genetic uh, disorders in which the body cannot properly process food into energy. The pediatric population is unique in that uh, their organ pathologies are quite different than the pathologies we see in adults. Uh, so it is very uh, important to have distinction between how a normal organ look versus abnormal organ in children. And I will throw in the fourth subspecialty that's very important, which is pulmonary pathology. Even not considering our current times, uh, a lot of causes of death or contributory causes of death have to do with the lungs. Garden variety pneumonias, asthmas, pulmonary embolism, uh, COPD, which could include emphysema. Then there could be environmental diseases that cause uh, fibrosis and could mean a lot to families uh, in trying to track disease origin or for workmen's compensation. And then considering current times, not all pneumonias are the same. Uh, so being able to evaluate it under the microscope so that you can best identify the pathogen in involved is very important in the field of forensics. And I will say, in addition to Dr. Lavity's analysis of the pulmonary pathology, the body only has um, a handful of ways in which it can respond to things. And the lungs are exposed to an infinite number of things that should possibly be not in the body because we inhale things all the time. So if you are looking at five different responses to cue you in on an infinite number of stimuli, it takes a very trained eye to understand what all the different diseases of the lungs are and how they represented in the histology. So um, understanding the lungs as well as pediatric tissues, as well as cardiovascular tissues and brain tissue, these are the specialized areas that I think all forensic pathologists could really benefit from. And I would tell you there's probably not a lot of forensic pathologists that are experts in all four, but probably each one has a certain personal interest in one or two of these additional fields. That makes the work of a medical examiner a little bit easier. Okay, now to shift gears a little bit, we did get a few questions that are more specific and not just relating to training. There are questions about when can we not perform an autopsy? For instance, on burned individuals, people who are drowned or people who are too decomposed, are there any instances in which we can't perform an autopsy? What do you think, Dr. Sung? And these are all topics that we're going to definitely cover in season two, but as a sneak peek or a little taste of that, when examining burned bodies, there's this notion that individuals might burn a body to conceal a crime, conceal a homicide, for example. And oftentimes, the extent of the burning of a body is not so complete that we can't perform the autopsy. 
or in other words, we actually can perform autopsies on burned individuals. Although the surface of the skin might be burned away, the underlying organs frequently are preserved where we can perform toxicology and also look at injuries and organ diseases in a burned body. So the process of cremating a body takes a very high temperature, usually in the you know, 1,400 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for a number of hours. Definitely a house fire can get to that temperature, but usually the duration is much shorter. So in an attempt to cremate a body to hide a crime, it's actually pretty difficult. In regards to drowning, yes, there is very frequently some decomposition of the body and the organs can be decomposed, but if there's an injury to those organs, that injury will still be there. Now, of course, a body can be severely decomposed. And if that's the case where all of the tissues are to a state that gross observation is not that helpful, we can always get the help of our forensic anthropologist to look for any injuries on the bony structures. So there are times in which autopsy can be limited, but there's still an examination that we can do. And technically, even examining bones, as I have learned, is by definition an autopsy. Right. Now, we did get a very specific request to talk about our autopsy room. And for all of those who have not visited our autopsy room, we have, I would say, a pretty spacious one with lots of skylights. And that really helps lift up our own personal mood when you can have that natural light come in. But our autopsy room is divided into seven total autopsy stations. Station one is specifically designed to have the cutting area a little lower for those individuals that need uh, wheelchair access, for example. Each of our seven cutting stations have two areas. So if we were operating at full capacity, we could have simultaneously 14 open bodies at one time. Now, very rarely do we ever use all seven of those autopsy stations, but if need be, we do have that capacity. Now, to keep things straight, what we've done is we color code all of our instruments. Of those people that have ever worked in, in, let's say, a machine shop where there's several mechanics working, it's quite common that one person might borrow an instrument from their coworker and then simply forget to return it. And that happens here too. So to help mitigate that, what we did was we just simply color-coded each station. So station two is pink and so on and so forth. So all of the instruments of that station have that color coding. So if an instrument does grow legs and walk away, we know where to return it to. And it makes for a little bit of pride in your own station where you can keep your station clean, you can keep your instruments maintained, and it's a little home away from home. I hope you all enjoyed this little question and answer session. Please keep the questions coming on either our Instagram page or send us an email. It's DetroitsDailyDocket at gmail.com. Once again, DetroitsDailyDocket at gmail.com. We'll try to get to all of your questions either in another episode or uh, we'll send you an email. So once again, please keep them coming. And thank you for joining us.